turn to page four. I think we've got that in the middle of the poem. <coughs> Remember, each one of the quartets has dealt with a specific place, a specific um, element, fire, air, earth, and wa um, water, and um, these great themes of history and um, and the still point, the still point moment um, where what goes on in our life meets with um, a timeless moment where eternity intersects with our own life. Um, those have been the major themes of the four quartets and music. Um, here he was, remember he was dealing with river, the, the, the river was a brown god and the way in which the modern world tries to master nature, that we try to control it for our own purposes. and um, So that's one of the major themes running through this. On page four, I sometimes wonder <coughs> if that is what Krishna meant, among other things, or one way of putting the same thing, that the future is a faded song, a royal rose or a lavender spray of wistful regret for those who are not yet here to regret, pressed between yellow leaves of a book that has never been opened. And the way up is the way down, and the way forward is the way back. <coughs> you cannot face it steadily, but this thing is sure, that time is no healer. The patient is no longer here. When the train starts and the passengers are settled to fruit, periodicals, and business letters, and those who saw them off have left the platform, their faces relax from grief into relief to the sleepy rhythm of a hundred hours. Fare forward, travelers, not escaping from the past into different lives or into any future. You are not the same people who left that station or who will arrive at any terminus while the narrowing rails slide together behind you. And on the deck of the drumming liner, watching a furrow that widens behind you, you shall not think the past is finished or the future is before us. Remember in God's time, we saw that pretty clearly in the Paradiso, there is no before or after. God can do things with the past because it's not closed to him. Uh, it's an eternal present. Or the future is all before us at nightfall and the rigging and the aerial is a voice descending, though not to the ear, a murmuring shell of time and not in any language. Fare forward, you who think that you are voyaging, you are not those who saw the harbor receding or those who will disembark. Here between the hither and the farther shore, while time is withdrawn, consider the future and the past with an equal mind. At the moment which is not of action or inaction, you can receive this. On whatever sphere of being the mind of a man may be intent at the time of his death, that is the one action, and the time of death is every moment, which shall fructify in the lives of others. And do not think of the fruit of action, fare forward. I hate to do this, but I'm a, I just repeat that. Whatever is on our mind at our death, how important that moment is. And he's saying every moment's of death, we should be you know, reflecting what, what, what is, what, what preoccupies us. Where, what's our soul resting on, if it is at all? O voyagers, O seamen, you who come to port, and you whose bodies will suffer the trial and judgment of the sea, or whatever event, this is your real destination. 
So Krishna is when he admonished Arjuna on the field of battle. Not farewell, but fare forward, voyagers. Lady whose shrines stand on the promontory, pray for all those who are in ships, those whose business has to do with fish, and those concerned with every lawful traffic, and those who conduct them. Repeat a prayer also on behalf of women who have seen their sons or husbands setting forth and not returning. Figlia del tuo figlio, queen of heaven. Also pray for those who were in ships and ended their voyage in the sand, in the sea's lips, or in the dark throat which will not reject them, or whatever cannot reach them, the sound of the sea's bell, perpetual angelus. To communicate with Mars, converse with spirits, to report the behavior of the sea monster, describe the horoscope, aerospicate or scry, observe disease and signatures, evoke biography from the wrinkles of the palm and tragedy from fingers, release omens by sortilage or tea leaves, riddle the inevitable with playing cards, fiddle with pentagrams or barbiturate acids, or dissect the recurrent image into pre-conscious terrors, to explore the womb or tomb or dreams, all these are usual pastimes and drugs and features of the press <coughs> and always will be. Some of them, especially when there is distress of nations and perplexity, whether on the shores of Asia or in Edgeward Road, obviously some street in England, the same. Man's curiosity searches past and future and clings to that dimension. But to apprehend the point of intersection of the timeless with time is an occupation for the saint. Those of you who have been with us from the beginning, you know that one of the themes of the epic is coming into the present. And I've been saying from the beginning that the epic world always takes us back into an idealized world through memory, mimosine. Sing used the, the anger of Achilles, or the man of many ways, or the man of arms, Achilles, Odysseus. Every one of their efforts, those heroes, always brings us into the present. And we've seen, particularly a work like the Odyssey, remember in the Odyssey how many people live in the past. They live in their griefs. They can't shake them. But one of the things Odysseus was doing was undergoing this voyage to get home. And what happens when he gets home is this timeless moment when Odysseus and Penelope make love. Remember, and Athena stops the sun. Um, the, the tendency of of the human psyche, as we all know, is to live in before or after, but not in now. We live in memories, regrets, guilt, hope, expectations, but not here and now. And that's the only point in which we meet Christ, who's an eternal present. You know, he's got that very much on his mind. But to apprehend the point of intersection of the timeless with time is an occupation for the saint. No occupation either, but something given and taken in a lifetime's death in love, ardor and selflessness and self-surrender. For most of us, there is only the unattended moment, the moment in and out of time, the distraction fit, lost in a shaft of sunlight, the wild time unseen, or the winter lightning, or the waterfall, or music heard so deeply that it is not heard at all, but you are the music while the music lasts. These are only hints and guesses, hints followed by guesses, and the rest is prayer 
observance, discipline, thought, and action. The hint half guessed, the gift half understood is incarnation. Here, the impossible union of spheres of existence is actual. Here, the past and future are conquered and reconciled, where action were otherwise movement of that which is only moved and has in it no source of movement, driven by demonic, thonic powers. And right action is freedom from past and future also. For most of us, this is the aim never here to be realized, or only undefeated because we have gone on trying. We content at the last if our temporal reversion nourish not too far from the yew tree, the life of significant soil. Okay, um, I want to do something this morning that I've not done before, but I want to put a question out to you before we begin, because I hope it settles in as we go over it. I'm going to try to get out of the way as much as I can, but I'm going to be doing a little bit of an overview because um, I want to pull things together before we stop. Um, but I really want to end in Dante's own language as much as I can and, and then come back to this question that I want to ask. I've got two questions for you guys before we start. Um, and um, I'm going to... Is that yours? That's yes. yours? Yeah. Um, I'd like to ask them again, but I'm only going to ask the first one to end our time together. I'm going to leave you mulling over the second. The two questions are this. What did Donnie, what did Donnie do when he came back? And how in the world did he do it? And I can't ask that strong enough because here's where I'm going with this. I'll give it all away. You know from the reading of the end of the Paradiso that when Dante enters the, um, the heaven of the fixed stars, he returns to Gemini. He's already met with Cacciaguida, his great-great-grandfather. He's going back to origins. Um, he meets with um, the, the principal disciples, Peter, um, James, and John, who wrote the encyclicals, and Peter was the first pope. He undergoes an examination of faith, hope, and charity, so he's going back to supernatural virtues. He's entered that world. After that, he's, he meets with Adam, talks with Adam, his, his father, the father of us all, and asks about um, a number of things. Um, and then he will enter the Imperium, the um, heavenly Jerusalem, and, and see the celestial rose in all of its beauty. In that, in that moment, Beatrice will um, be looking at something and Dante will look into her eyes and he will see an inverted image of what he saw just a couple of cantos before. If you remember, I, I spoke about it because I, to me it was a stunning moment. When Dante's in the back of the universe, he looks back at the entire universe. I just thought that's a, such, a, such an extraordinary, splendid m moment. He's looking at the whole universe and he sees the earth at the center of it and calls it this paltry thing. We talked about that, you know, when you, when, you, when you make that imaginative leap or leap of faith and look back at things, things don't have the importance that they do when we're immediately caught up with them. 
which is one of the values of that moment. He describes it in terms, or that's the moment that I called as the, what the church calls contemptus mundi, contempt of the world. We're all asked to feel that. Christ said, if you don't hate yourself, the world, and you, you, know, you won't have any, we've got to learn to turn our backs on things because if we don't, we'll never learn to love them the way we're supposed to. It's an, it's an inversion of that moment because when she, he looks into Beatrice, what he sees instead of this paltry earth, he sees a still point. It's moving so fast it's still, and then all the circles emanating from it are, 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 are moving with um, <coughs> gradually decreased speed. I'll come to that in a minute. And he's perplexed. So Dante's vision is, is once again enlarged because it's been going on all along. His whole vision of things is changing. He, he learns to see the whole physical, material universe in terms of a spiritual vision. I'll explain it in a minute if, if anybody's still perplexed by it. But. And then from there, suddenly he sees, as he looks at the, the Imperium, the, the heavenly Jerusalem, he sees a stream of light with banks, with, with what seem to be flowers, and Beatrice tells him that before he goes on, he has to drink the water from that river. And he does, and it changes. And what we see then is a light um, coming forth from God. That's what that light was, um, that is imparted to the whole kingdom. Everybody receives that light, everybody gives it back. So what seemed a river initially now turns out to be the light, the wash of the heavenly kingdom. And then he sees the beatific rose. This is the, you all got this, right? Everybody get a copy? And he goes through the order. Um, and at that point, um, he turns around to say something to Beatrice as she's gone. This is, a, this is like the moment when, you know, at the top of the earthly paradise, when Beatrice arrives and he, his knees start shaking and he turns to Beatrice because he wants comfort. I'm sorry, Virgil, and Virgil's not there. Remember we talked about that. It's a wanting to go back to what's the mood because he's going on. Beatrice is gone and Bernard, St. Bernard, has come to help him complete his journey. It's a, it's a man, interestingly. And I think there are things to be said about that. Beatrice's relationship to Dante has been very, very personal, intimate. Bernard is um, the, the great lover of Mary. And what we learn is that um, Dante can't complete the journey without prayers from Mary. She will ask for the grace that he, he be given the ability to see into the mysteries of them. So he drinks in the water. And then he begins to see the, the layout of the, the relationships of people in heaven, the symmetry, the beauty, the poetry of it. And, um, and then he makes a special invocation and um, prays for the additional help to, to look into the mystery of the Trinity. And that's what he does at the very end. We'll look at that in a few minutes. But here's my question. He's been in the back of the universe. He's seen it, the whole universe, materially, physically. He's seen the universe from the point of view of a still point, from God at the center of it, moving so fast that it's still an imparting movement to all the intelligences, the angelic orders that, that govern the world. It's all these metaphysical principles that, um, 
that uh, affect everything that's going on in creation. He drinks from the river. He sees the, um, the rose of paradise, the, the celestial rose. And then he sees the, the trinity. And at the very end, looking so hard, because he wants to see how a god, the second person of the trinity, could be conformed to a human image. Because that's the, the central mystery of the incarnation. And he said it was too deep to see, and then suddenly there's this flash, and we're moved back to the stars, and, and Dante now has to return to the world. So here's my question. Alan Tate, who is one of my, I mean, my most favorite critics of our modern period of poet, and great, one of, I think one of the greatest critics of the 20th century, and a great reader of Dante. He converted, by the way, became Catholic in the middle of his life. A great, great story. Sad story in some ways, but a great story. Alan Tate says of this moment that it's tragic. He has to go back to the world. So my question is, what does Dante do? Having seen all of this, having seen all of this, drank from that light, seen heaven, stood in the back of the universe, like Paul in the third heaven. Paul returns. What does he do? How does he live? How does he live in a living room with furniture? Um, I mean, obviously, we know one of the answers to that is he writes his book, and it's pretty clear how dedicated he is. It's, he knows when he comes back, he has a calling. He's got a work to do. He's going to finish this book. But how in the world does he look at the rest of the world? Gratitude, love. Is he going to be as critical still of the world? Having gone through, remember, every level has its denunciations. They don't stop. Um, how is he going to live in the world? What in the world is he going to do now? Remember, he was there looking back at this paltry thing? That's my first question. And here, to me, is the more provocative. <laughs> what are we going to do? Because we've been with Christ, we've seen Christ. Dante's seen him. He has to, he has to leave that kingdom. It's, it's, uh, to me, it's more than Peter, when Peter says of the transfiguration, let's make up tents here, Christ, and stay here. Once Peter sees the transfiguration, he doesn't want to go down. And he doesn't know that when he does go down, he's going to be martyred. To me, it's far greater than that, because he's seen everything. Peter didn't. When Dante returns to the world, what does he do? And now I'm asking this seriously of you, all of us, what do we do having seen that? How do we live? What do we do with our lives? Drink too much, lust too much still, eat too much, too much pride, envy. What do we do in the world now? It's hard for me to believe that that isn't partly behind Francis's ask request that we all read this book. Let me leave those two questions with you and we'll finish the Divine Comedy, but I really would like you to hold on to them, okay? Okay. How's that for hard enough? <clears throat> Didn't know that was going to be homework. <laughs> you call that homework. That's a lot of homework. Yeah. <laughs> That assignment, I have a feeling that assignment's life, not going to be done. How about life-altering homework? Okay. Okay, let's review really quickly. 
the, in the last couple of weeks, we've been seeing that there's nothing going on in the Paradiso, nothing going on that Dante um, doesn't explain in terms of first causes. So repeatedly, I've, I've given you some of the passages. There's even one, I think, in 27 that belongs to our reading today. Over and over and over again, he keeps talking about the first principle, the first mover, the, the father um, um, with the idea and the love between them. You know, he's always related the first principle to everything as a way of reminding us there is nothing that goes on. He, the, the moon spots, <coughs> the broken vows, there is nothing that goes on, nothing that doesn't immediately relate to God. It's his way of showing he's present. Now, the reason I want to underline that today is because we live in a world in which God is not present. 19th century, God's dead. Um, Arlington Robinson, a, a great 19th century poet, um, what does he call it? Um, it's, it's the infinite spaces. Um, man without God, the universe without God. The, the hills are empty. You know, we, we live in a, in a world in which physics, the, the fundamental approach to everything is materialistic, it's empirical, matter. So everything beyond matter isn't real for us. Everything is explained in terms of atoms and particles and forces. And so we live in a world in which there is no God. <coughs> Don, I've got to be really clear about this. Dante lived in the same kind of world. It's, sciences had returned at his time. They weren't in the Middle Ages because the Middle Ages were largely platonic. And if you know anything about Plato, you know that he, his, his attitude towards material causes was dark. There could be no science, really, in a platonic worldview. There is an Aristotelian. The sciences return. So Dante was facing a problem that was just as current then as it is now. But he answered it. The whole Paradiso reaffirms the presence of God everywhere. This class began with, with that statement to see if we couldn't find God, to see if we couldn't find Christ where ordinarily we don't assume he's going to be. So the whole purpose of this time together has been to see if we can't be more aware of his presence where he is. There's no place he isn't in Dante's world. He's everywhere. Um, we, we talked about the importance of language, that in the Paradiso, Dante makes us aware that language as we know it is, is inadequate to explain these things because the closer he gets to God, the more our, the categories of time and, and space fall away. We'll see that today. So we had all those strange things, all the reflexive verbs, you know, in othering, in youing, in thine, in, in, what was that one where he says, before you go inciting, before he gets deeper inside of the Imperium, all these reflexive verbs show that language is inadequate because people are, are maintaining their individuality while coming together, becoming unified, because love by nature is unitive as it is in the Trinity, right? That's our source, that's our image. So there's nothing that can go on in the, in the Paradiso that isn't indwelling. But the idea of the perichoresis, the indwelling, here, the is called the perichoresis. Oops, yeah, perichoresis. The indwelling, 
and one person in the other. When we talk about our marriages and our relationships with each other, um, we're asked to become one, one flesh. The church talks about it. Who, who believes that today? I mean, the world probably looks at Catholics as being superstitious and stupid. But can we do that if our preoccupation is worldly? Remember, we're getting farther and farther away from the world as we approach God. And there was that image, remember, when he first saw the eagle approach him in the, of the heaven of justice, when he said, what did he say, I heard, I heard I and mine, but what I understood was we and ours, that, that already his, his habit of using language in a certain way is being broken because his, his experience is, of heaven is requiring a different kind of language. Um, <clears throat> Um, when, when he enters the level of heaven, remember he has all these questions about baptism, and the eagle answers him categorically. I mean, he, he, he warns humans against being um, too intellectually prideful, thinking we have answers all the time and can understand God's mind when it's too deep for us. And, and the eagle asserts categorically from God that nobody gets to heaven who isn't baptized. Seems like a stunning thing, a sort of harsh. And then immediately we get these, uh, the, the eagle introduces Dante to the five figures in the eye of the eagle, and two of them are Trajan and Riphius. And if you remember, Trajan was the Roman emperor who died, but who was brought back to life by the prayers of Gregory, Pope Gregory, St. Gregory, and baptized. And then Riphius, you all remember, we went through, through this, right? Riphius is who? You all remember? Quiz. Who's Riphius? <laughs> Hold it. The Trojan War? Yeah. Yes. He was the Trojan. Remember Virgil's description of him as the most righteous of men, but the gods thought otherwise, and they killed him. Remember? And then and I said, I suggested that Dante's putting them there as a way of saying, but the God thought otherwise, that he's there in heaven. How does a pagan get in heaven? And there's that description that he became so good in his life that, that he was baptized by God. So no sooner does Dante show us the, the, the literal the law of baptism, that nobody gets to heaven who isn't baptized because that's a sacramental necessity. Then we see that God is doing these extraordinary things. That um, So over and over again, Dante's making it clear that as humans, we have to be careful of the judgment we make and the spirit we bring to those judgments. Both. The judgments and the spirit that we bring to them. At every level there was a denunciation. Each according to a particular virtue. And how appropriate, because remember, as you get higher into the heavens, Dante is greeted by, by souls who are perfected in the virtues. Um, fortitude, um, what was it? Fortitude, well, it's sun is wisdom, but then fortitude and justice and then temperance. How appropriate, because the ones who are perfected in virtue would be the ones who are most clear-sighted about failings. So the higher he gets, the stronger the denunciations become. The, the corruptions, particularly in the clergy, but Florence has gone to hell 
you know, the world has gone to hell, that people are bloated and um, um, self-indulgent and lacking discipline and um, the seed of Peter is empty, the church has become corrupted. Um, and we talked about the indwelling again and again, and finally Dante's enlarging vision. Um, Beatrice is helping him to see because as she shows him more and more goodness, there's more and more for him to love. And as he loves more, he wants to know more. So he's spurred on to see more. That's the nature of the spiritual quest. Remember, sight, spurt, opens our hearts to love more. So we love more, we want to know more. And you, we know that Dante has this unquenchable thirst for truth. For he, he loves knowledge <coughs> to the truth. Would you define parachoresis one more time? Please? It's indwelling. Parachoresis is yeah, the, 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 that those were yeah. like their synonyms. It's, it just indwelling means indwelling. That's the, 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 the church, the, the father's terms of it. The church fathers. Okay. Very, very quick because we're at an end. Um, very quick, very quickly. Um, don't forget that what we've been looking at since the beginning is what we're looking at here, that Dante's written an epic and he knows it. Why is that important? Because it belongs to a tradition that in some way he is completing. I mean, and he's done an amazing thing and it's hard to appreciate what he's done if you don't see the early epics. It's like taking a scripture out of context when we have to read all of scripture you know, to, to see the meaning of things. The epic poet, remember, was called always in, in, the, in the ancient world, Homer, Virgil. He was called a vates, a seer, a prophet, he was the one who saw things other people didn't see. He was the one who helped the people see itself. And we had that, um, that section in the Odyssey in which Odysseus sits down among the Phaeacians, remember, and tells the story. So we have an image in the Homeric world of what the poet does. The poet is the one who sits in the midst of a community and tells the story so that people can learn their self-identity, who they are as a people. He's the one who reveals a people's identity, um, the identity of a people to itself. <clears throat> and remember, <laughs> be on guard here, remember what happens afterwards if, I can't remember, how many of you have been, I know you've been here forever, Beth, but. Um, oh, pick on me. <laughs> I was that was a picking on you. I was, that was actually a compliment. I, I can always depend on you because you've been here from the beginning. When Odysseus is taken home by the Phaeacians, these are the people he told his story to. The ship is destroyed. A mountain is turned on it because of their hubris. So it's dangerous to hear stories. <laughs> it's dangerous. It's dangerous to listen to prophets. Just hold that on. I thought you. Um, <laughs> Um, I was going to say, I was going to I thought I um, Anyway, so the epic poet is a seer, has always been. Oh, um, I mentioned this before. Fock, or, um, Chaucer is still a part of that tradition. 
Chaucer lived at a time when the poet is the one who sits in the middle of a court and tells a story. The, the greatest source of wisdom in the ancient world and the medieval world was poetry. Always, the poet was the poet. Who else? They didn't have books. There wasn't media. God, I wish we could lose this. Um, the poet was the one who sat there. By the time of Shakespeare, the poet is getting pushed out to the margins. And I mentioned this before. Now, the poet is a voice in the desert. Who listens to poets anymore? And it's not uncommon for poets to be suicidal. And as Dan reminded me, musicians as well. Those are the ones on the borders. So we've lost that sense of a poetic center, of a, a, a love of wisdom. We, we've replaced a love of wisdom with love of information, the web. And I hope everybody's clear, information is not even close to what wisdom is. Um, the epic theme, remember from the beginning, has always been a founding. The poet is always the spokesman of a people. He, he's the one who, who brings a knowledge of, of the disorders of a people to that people so that they can begin to see themselves. So the, the, the major theme is a refounding. Every epic we've read is a refounding, dealing with some disorder. And the people, the poet is the one who, who, who makes a people aware of whatever that disorder is. A people are caught, trapped in some disorder. They can't see it very well. That's, isn't that true of the Old Testament? All the prophets keep coming um, to reveal something about the people. In the Old Testament, always they've turned from God in some way. In, in some sense, that's true of what's going on in the epics. They have lost their way with the gods. There's some disjunction. Um, they're out of attunement with the divine order, with the gods. And the, the poet is the one who writes a poem about an action that shows that that order is restored. It's a founding, a refounding. What's the disorder here? I'm going to make a stab at this because to, to, to me it seems really complex, but I'd say what Dante's writing about is um, um, something peculiar to his time. And that's been true of every poet we've read, Homer of his people, Virgil of his, Dante of Christendom. That um, one of the results of that long struggle of the church to disengage itself from the state, from the empire, produced this new kind of commune um, which prized a greater degree of freedom. And what we're seeing in the Divine Comedy is the way in which people have abused that freedom, the ugly things that people do with it. So we've produced this new regime that, that um, sh should protect, enhance, encourage a better use of freedom, right? Because now they are far more independent of these powers, the, the church and the state. But what we see, in fact, is this horrible abuse. So all of the disorders through the Divine Comedy um, have to do, Dante, I said before, he's the, he's the poet like Shakespeare of human responsibility, human choice. We are responsible for the things we do. That the human freedom has, um, has reached a point of, of such importance for people. It's the great achievement of the West. It's what distinguishes the West from the rest of the world. 
But this is what we've done. This is for Dante. It's Babylon. It's Egypt. We have taken that freedom with these new communes and virtually destroyed it. Um, the other hero, Dante, um, remember they've all been in the past struggling to, to restore an order, to recover an order. <clears throat> the epic hero bears within himself the sins of his people. He's like the person in Plato's cave. He bears those sins. There's not a one of us in this room today who doesn't bear in himself the worst sins of our regime. We grew up with them, they're in us. The hero is the one who has to undergo these great struggles, overcome all these obstacles in order to get free of them. That's the action of the journey. That's what the epic journey is about. That's why he faces such obstacles. That's why Dante needed Virgil. That's why he needs Beatrice. Natural reason, supernatural gifts. He could not do it without the help of those. Um, and remember that in some sense this vision began at that first moment when he saw Beatrice as a young boy. He immediately fell in love with her, he saw, and I think that's why the focus is on Beatrice, not his wife. She was the one who imaged this divine beauty of the Trinity. And it changed him and presented him with temptations because if you've been given a vision like that, what happens when you betray it? No. So it began with her and fittingly it ended with her. I mean, she's the one who takes him up to Bernard, the, the last leg of the journey. So these are, these are some of the things. Now, and the last thing, remember, interesting, too, the great theme of the Iliad, Cleos. Cleos, the Greek for honor, or, or human integrity, the integrity of the human soul, the great um, theme of the Odyssey, Nostos, homecoming, for which we get nostalgia. Odysseus's homecoming, the whole point of the journey is to get home to um, be re reunited with his wife. Cleos, Nostos, the great theme of the Aeneid was Pietas, piety, the love of the gods, and the founding of this eternal city called Rome. This, this new sense of a man's identity within a community. What we learn from Virgil as an epic hero that's radically different from what we learn from Homer is that um, the, the common good is greater than anything, that people never accomplish things on their own. That was one of Virgil's most severe critiques of the Homeric world. Odysseus is by himself, Achilles is by himself, Aeneas is never without somebody. This is about a community, kind of um, communion between people. Their, they, their identity can't be distinguished from um, the community. What is Dante doing? It's just studying. All three of them are completed here. Dante recovers the health of his soul. Nostos, he's going home at the very end. When he enters the Empyrean, he's home. It's a home that Homer never understood, but he's home. And Rome, repeatedly in the Divine Comedy, the, the Rome, it's the Rome of all citizens, it's the New Jerusalem. It's the, it's the eternal city of which Rome was the copy. 
So every theme from the ancient world is now realized, com completed, perfected. So the work that Dante did was extraordinary. So now today, today. Should I stop for a minute? Any questions? I know this is. That was incredible. To weave that together so we could all see it. That was like. Sometimes just one line like that is enough. That's a lot there. We've been summarizing all. I mean, I've been doing this all along, but this is what we've been doing from the beginning. By the way, I meant to say this. I think, and I'm pretty committed to it right now. I know a lot of you weren't here when we started, but when we pick up in the fall again, I'm going to take up the first month and do the Iliad. And then at some point, I'm going to maybe mid-year, maybe when we take a break for Christmas or something, when we start up again, I think I'll take a month to do the Odyssey. <laughs> I just... I, I just believe in this so I mean because you can't the divine comedy doesn't exist in a vacuum there's this tradition that's been going on it's it's the Catholic tradition it's one of the things that makes our faith so different that our roots are there Dante couldn't do what he did without these things so anyway I've been saying from the beginning how important it is to look at holes and we don't see the hole well enough and I want to just make a, um, a simple point about Dante as a way of showing how different. With Luther and Calvin in the Reformation, nature is destroyed. I can't say that strongly, I'm probably maybe saying it too destroyed, but for, the, for most of the Reformation thinkers, the, 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 the fundamental difference between a Catholic and Protestant is in the um, understanding of the effects of the fall. It's one of the fundamental differences that distinguishes us. For the Reformation thinkers, all is corrupt. Man is depraved. It's a very dark view. Man is depraved by nature. So the whole natural order was seen as corrupt. It's almost Manichaean, truly. It's almost Manichaean. It's a very negative view, and the, the result of it is that man can't do anything without grace. Well, you know that Dante doesn't believe that. Man can be, become virtuous. It won't get into heaven. We can't, I mean, the Protestants and Catholics are together now. We can't get to heaven without grace. But how we understand the rest of it is subtly different, major, fundamentally different. <clears throat> Nature is corrupted. It's depraved. Man's depraved. Without grace, we can't do anything. That's where you get all these solo. Sola scriptura, scripture alone, sola fide, faith alone, yeah. We get to heaven by faith alone or scripture or one of the. Um, <clears throat> Luther hated Aristotle. He thought reason was corrupt. The, the, the Aristotle's rational understanding was corrupt. Calvin believed in predestination. So he radically undermines free man's free will. Here's what Dante does, and it's so important to see this. We would describe Dante as a poet um, of the symbolic imagination. You, you, could, you could substitute um, 
analogical for symbolic. For Dante, um, the only way you can get to heaven is by beginning with low things because we, are, we, we were born with a body. We were created with a body. God made it good. Dante celebrates the body everywhere. So for Dante, he always begins with the lowest thing and by analogies rises to something higher. He fought, remember I talked about the, the prophet is the one who will start with a point close nearby and connect to, to a point at a distance. Dante's doing that. Let me just give you one example here. Just, this is, he, what, here, he starts with the woman in the street. Wait one minute, Tom, I, I know you're there. He starts with the woman in the street, sees Beatrice, and finds in her an image of the Trinity. There was no priest standing around saying, there's the Trinity. That was one of those intuitions that you just, the, the beauty is so splendid, and immediately something happens. But it's in the girl in the street. The, so he starts with the ordinary thing, the most ordinary things. Remember what we've been saying in the last month. There's nothing that doesn't show the presence of God. If we only had eyes to see it. A wind hover, a girl pricking her finger with a needle. The lyric poems that I've been reading. The dragonfly. What am I missing? I mean, all those lyric poems that we read, yeah? God was everywhere. In the most ordinary things, he's here. How could it not be? He made us. Here, take a look on page um, 566. Towards the end, I was just... Um, <clears throat> this is um, when Dante is, is drinking from the river of life from God. How, how in the world do you explain that? <clears throat> Somebody find the words for that. 566 at the top. The stream, the jewels you see leap in and out of it, the smiling blooms are all prefigurations of their truth. When Dante looks at the river, he thinks he sees flowers and flecks of light, you know, flying back and forth. As soon as he drinks from the light, it's as if it becomes clear they are prefigurations. He doesn't have the sight, the power of sight, to see. Once the power is given to him, he sees them for what they are. They are the souls of the blessed and angels flitting back and forth. These things are not imperfect in themselves. The defect rather lies within your sight, as yet not strong enough to reach such height. No baby, having slept too long and now awake and late, could rush to turn his face more eagerly to seek his mother's milk. <clears throat> We talked from the beginning, sorry, from the very beginning. One of the characteristics of the epic, the epic simile. The poet's use of similes to make connections between things. Typically what Dante does is take something very ordinary as a way of explaining something extraordinary. So whatever supernatural experiences we have are always rooted in the ordinary, the things that are familiar. He always carries the lower things up with him. How could it not be? That's what Christ did. Can I make an observation? Sure. This is kind of old, but um, um, that just brought this to mind. Um, I went to um, Spain a few years ago and went to the Prado. The Museum. <coughs> if, if you ever get a chance to go, it's phenomenal. Say anyway, it again, say it again. What was it? The Prado is the big uh, art museum there. Where in Spain? Where? Madrid. 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 I'm sorry. Um, but there was a painting in there. It was, 
I, I, it still sticks in my mind. It was huge. And it was Mary, kind of up, up, I don't know how far up, and St. Bernard down there, and, sh and her breast was exposed, and milk was shooting down into his mouth. And I mean, it was just <laughs> such a, that always just, so when this was St. Bernard, I just thought, wow. <laughs> See, I, I never even heard the painting. Wow. I, I don't know who the artist was. Wow. But it was just this hugest picture of Mary. What was it, its effect on you then? Because right now, well, I just always remember Saint Bernard and just thinking, "Wow, he really loved Mary." <laughs> <laughs> she really loved him. Let, I, really let loved me ask. Him. Let me be more blunt. Was there something lewd about that having a breast exposed with milk? Um, not to me because I'm a, I'm a big Valache person with a breastfeeding. Yeah. No, no, not to me. Okay. There wasn't, but yeah. maybe to some people. Because I wonder, because even even if you're not, I mean, I hope it's clear what my attitude towards the body is, and mm -hmm. lots of it's shaped by Dante. But I, I think I wonder how many of us carry this sense of propriety, mm -hmm. you know, that so that you have to overcome that to finally be able to take a joy in us. I don't know. I was wondering if you had to, if that happened for you or not. But no. I'm glad you I'm glad you described it. <coughs> yeah, really it was, glad you described that. If you can find the name of that, I'd be really grateful. Maybe a Goya. Maybe. Goya? Yes, he, did a lot of, he did a lot of that, a lot of his paintings. Right? Mm -hmm. The religious art there was just phenomenal. Phenomenal. Yeah. Phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Thanks. Thanks. Okay. That's so anyway, you understand the point here. Dante is the poet of the symbolic imagination, the analogical imagination. He always keeps the lowly with us, carries it forward, is never left behind. In a world in which nature is corrupted, that won't happen. The way of analogy is lost. Yes, where do you start if it's not there? If nature is corrupted, what do you have to carry up? That's why you all, I mean, aren't you aware of this as you go through? There's probably a half dozen similes every two pages. I mean, a simile or two every every page, and almost all of them are very natural, ordinary things as a way of explaining, helping us to relate to something extraordinary. Okay, let's start. I want to go. Sorry, what? Oh, Tom. Sorry, Tom. I lost it. <laughs> oh, Sorry. It was, no, it was, see what the phrase I was looking for. Uh, you had it there, and I was because the the, the um, symbolic imagination that spoke. Mm -hmm. Now I, I don't think I came in touch with this nature of symbols until I started studying Jung. Jung, yeah. And the dream interpretation. Yeah. And it's like those archetypal images yeah. that come, and the, like then you get introduced to a whole different realm. Mm -hmm. And I didn't get yeah. that because I don't, I mean, I wish I, I don't think I could have comprehend any, any of this uh, when I was younger. Did you get it? Pat, can, would you mind passing it around? Okay. Wow. You or here, can I show it? It's the Vision of St. Bernard by Alonzo Cano. Hmm. How did you find that? That's in Moya's paintings of Mary and St. Bernard. We're talking about wisdom here. We're talking about wisdom in, in opposition to information. And you go online and do this. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> 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 Through the heart. <laughs>
I had the same experience in. Uh, in Wait, in, I have to oh, drive. Go ahead, go ahead. Heretic. <laughs> Sorry, sorry, Daddy. You know I don't. I hope everybody has come to understand something of my sense of humor in this class. But I'm I'm grateful that you did that. Linda and I went was were in Paris, and we went to the Orsay, right across from uh, the Louvre. Oh and my! And we were walking on a rainy night. We got lost trying to walk oh to. My. Oh, Eiffel Tower in a rain. So we say, I'm so damn cold in the rain. So we have like two drafts yeah, cold in the, the sky. Museum. And in there we saw this uh, painting. Wow. Of, wow. That's, and it was, it wow. was the, this is a woman standing in the middle of the picture, and she she's naked, but she's standing on a boat that's in the middle of a pond. And she's beautiful, she's gorgeous. Not sensual, gourd, but just full of light. And you, it, uh, and the name of it was, her name was, the name of the painting was Solitude. Ah. It was so stunning. I mean, I was just like mm -hmm. dumbfounded. When you see something like that, it hits you right here. Mm -hmm. and that, yeah, so that, that, I had a similar experience with that. Now that I've seen the image, it truly it makes me wonder, I, I wonder how many people would find that lewd, lewd. And, and 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 the Protestant mind because of its, you know that, because and Mary, you know that she's that um, all, all the things that are associated with her, I mean that's a that's a daring, 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 painting, to make something that's so personal and and for some people disgusting, a matter of spiritual things. You don't see much. I mean you get the. It doesn't matter. I mean, I just, you know, I, I mean, I'm glad. I mean, I, I'm so, and I'm so glad for the way you enjoy it, you know, and I've never heard of it. Um, but it calls all sorts of things to mind, you know, with our, what we do with religion today and the body. When did, when did it get painted? Uh, I was wondering if it was before. I was going to say, yeah, before Dante. The, the, the wow. nature. Yeah. Yeah. What? Did it predate the decree of nature? Did it? I don't know. know. What was the date? What was it? What was it? No, I don't know. Just the style. We've got to, because I, I know you guys. I've got to get, yeah, we will. Um, turn to 550. Let's, let's go through. I want to try to get through to this and then return to my question. This is 550 when Dante... Um, 550? Remember, this is the Contemptus Mundi, the, the Via Negativi, negativia, yeah. the way of negation. He looks back from the edge of the back of the universe and he sees the earth, the top of 550. More of this puny threshing ground of ours I would have seen had not the sun moved on beneath my feet a sign and more away. Um, my mind in love yearning eternally to court its lady now is burning more than ever to behold the sight of her. And all that art and nature can contrive to lure the eye and thus possess the mind, be it in living flesh or portraiture combined, would seem like nothing when compared to the divine delight with which I glowed when once more I beheld her smiling face. Now they rise to the prima mobile 
And remember, he's just looked at the back of the universe. Um, page 553, at the top of 553, he looks in Beatrice's eyes. Beatrice has seen something. Um, and he describes it this way, the moment. I saw a point that radiated light so piercing that the eyes its brightness strikes are forced to shun from such intensity. That star which seems the smallest seen from here if set beside that point, like star by star appearing in the heavens, would seem a moon. <clears throat> Perhaps the distance of a halo's glow around the brilliant source that colors it when vapors hold it in their density as close as that a ring of fire whirled around this point at speed that would surpass the sphere that spins the swiftest round the world. This one was circled by a second one, a second by a third, a third by a fourth, and so on. Now what's he seeing? Here's, what, here's what's going on. When Dante's in the back of the universe here, and he's looking at the, the planets with the Earth at the center. Remember, we talked about this. The Earth is this dull. Everything from the sublunary down is decay and corruption. It's changed, and everything above it is permanent. That's why the gods were associated with all the planets. When he's here, he looks back, and, and it's here that he has this view, the contemptuous Monday. Mundi. Or the via negativia, the, the way of negation. Because from the perspective of that distance, what he sees is this splendor in the whole order of God's creation. He's not preoccupied with things right in front of him. You know, he has a much larger view. <clears throat> but now looking at Beatrice, that view is inverted. And what he sees when he looks at the point is a still point. It's moving so fast, it's still. And it imparts emotion to all the other things around it. <coughs> What's going on? Bottom 554. <coughs> then she said, If you wish to be satisfied, listen to what I tell you. Then sharpen your wits on it. The course of the material spheres is wide or narrow in accord with more or less of virtue that infuses each throughout. The greater goodness makes for greater bliss. A greater bliss calls for a greater body. If it's perfect in all of its parts, therefore this sphere which sweeps all the world along with it must correspond to this, the inner ring that, that loves and knows the most. And so if you will take your measurements not by circumference, but by the power inherent in these beings that look like rings, you will observe a marvelous congruence of greater power to more, less to small, in every heaven with its intelligence. If you look at the, the, the universe in terms of matter, that is from a material perspective, yeah? You know, we know right now, that the first movement, the, the prima mobile, right? The first sphere receives its movement from God. So it's moving very fast. And it's the speed from the prima mobile that imparts its motion to all the other spheres. Dante's been trying to 
emphasize this principle in, in, in a variety of ways in, in the whole of the Paradiso. But if you look at the world in terms of its spiritual order, what you find is God at the center of the universe imparting his speed, his power to the angelic orders. So God is a still point with all of the angelic orders gradually being diminished in speed as they, as they are situated farther removed from God. So they're farther and farther away from him. So what she's doing is holding up two intersecting visions, two visions of dovetail. One material, it's a, it's a physical, you could call it an empirical perspective, the other metaphysical or spiritual. It's the vision when you look at God and see him imparting his light to the intelligence. Remember, angels are intelligences there. They're all mind, they have no bodies. Um, 558. This is almost too difficult to go into and I don't, we don't have time to but it's, it's worth mentioning on page 558, um, God, Dante wants to know why God created 558 in the middle of the page. She said, I tell you without asking you what you would hear, for I see your desire where everywhere and every when is centered. What's everywhere and the center of everywhere and every when? God. Yeah? Not to increase his good, which cannot be, but rather that his own reflected glory in its resplendence might proclaim, I am. In his eternity beyond all time, beyond all comprehension, as pleased him, new loves blossom from the eternal love. God made everything to share in his I am, his love. Um, Dante would have known from St. Thomas, because Thomas talks about it in his work on the Trinity, that um, creation is almost already implied in the Trinity because of God's love for his son. Remember we talked about this, his conception of himself is, produces the, the idea, the son, the image of himself, and the love between them is the spirit. If you see that action, creation is already implied in that going out, the love of, the I am by its very nature has another, it's love of another. Um, nor did he lie in his idleness before, for neither after nor before preceded the going forth of God upon these waters. Pure form, pure matter, form and matter mixed came forth into a perfect state of being, shot like three arrows from three string bow. It's interesting, there's three principles at issue here. This is really difficult. Prime. Prime matter is not a thing. It's not matter like this. Prime matter is actually a proclivity towards being before being comes into being. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. Okay. Got it. Crystal clear. Got it. Okay, here. Here, you snooties, all of you. Read Aristotle's metaphysics. Here, I can't, I can't, honestly, prime matter is, it's not matter as we know it, it's a, it's a, like a, a desire to become, it's like something not quite there that's, 
when it form is all act, it's already acting, it's act, it's, it's from God, because God is all act. There's nothing, there's nothing in potential in God. He is the fullness of act. So when prime matter and act meet, it produces things, and all things have a form. So behind everything in creation is this principle of, of prime matter and form, and when they meet, it, it produces creation. What Dante's saying here, it's interesting, it's Trinitarian. There's <coughs> pure form, pure matter, form and matter. Pure form is God. He is. He's all act. Prime, pure matter is, is prime matter. In a sense, it almost doesn't exist. It's, a, it's something that's potential. When the two of them come together, form and matter are mixed, then something comes into being. What he, what he describes now is the angels existing in a state of almost coming into being before creation or before time. And it goes on to, it's just a, it's, it's, it, metaphysically it's a really dense argument, but 558, 559 will give it to you. And, and he describes, Dante describes the moment when some of the angels fell, and this all before time, and he describes it as an instant because they, there's no time then. So the angels that fell, fell immediately. They, they wanted to be more than they were in envy, and that's where the fall. And then he says at the bottom of um, 559, the reason for the fall was the accursed presumption of the one you saw below crushed by the weight of all the universe. When the angels fell, they crushed the universe nature. Um, and Dante wants to ask at this, at this point, because it was one of these controversial questions that the scholastics used to argue about, because the scholastics used to, they had the timeless and metaphysical questions relating to time and things here in our world, always wrestling with them. And some theologians argued that angels had memory and Dante here is responding in the middle of 550, 560 saying, I shall say more and show you the pure truth of what on earth has now become confused by equivocations in their arguments. From the first moment these beings found their bliss within God's face in which they, all is revealed, they never turn their eyes from it. Hence no new object interrupts their sight and hence they have no need of memory. I mean if you think about it, it's true. There's nothing that goes on with the angel. Remember, well, here, let me put it this way. You know that thing about how many angels on the head of a pin? Mm -hmm. That may seem stupid to a lot of people. It's sort of amazing. Let me, let me illustrate this to show, show you how amazing these thinkers were. If there's a needle right here, and each one of us came into the door and put our minds on that needle. Scott comes in, puts his mind, Tom and Linda, you know, you all come in, Sue, everybody. Would that needle, the head of that needle, get any more crowded? No. Because there is no there for an incorporeal thing like the mind. You can, you can have an infinite number of minds pass through that door and all of them focus on the head of that needle. It will not get cr crowded. Because there's an, there's an incorporeal, immaterial quality to the human intellect. Right? Angels are that way. They have no bodies. So the ones who fell from God I mean, in some ways, they turn into, I mean, they lose their being, and there's no other way to describe it. But all the other angels have a, only, I mean, there's no other way for them to see except through the light of God, because their, their love of Him, their knowledge of Him, 
is their focus. So there's nothing they do that doesn't contain him. They're not in time the way we are. We have bodies. They're incorporeal. They don't. So they don't occupy space or time the way we do. I guess I'm having a, a difficult time thinking of if God made these angels with so much love and they couldn't turn their eyes from him and they, it was just all perfect, perfect, perfect. How does how do some fall? I mean, how? It's, it's a, I mean, I have the same. If you, if you were there in the presence of your creator, I mean, all I, the best that I can do, I can't, I mean, I have the same difficulty that you do, that because he created them with free will, um, and, I, and I, I don't have, I, but the typical traditional argument is that um, Satan maybe saw, looking because he was so brilliant, could see what was foreordained in the mind of God, of creation or men, and there was some envy. I, that's a hard argument for me to. I, I would rather think of it as that, it, that just his own will and the freedom of, of his intellect was enough. But I don't know. You know, I have the same. What I do believe pretty strongly is it happened immediately, because there's no time. It's not like time existed and they learned things and then decided. You know, it's a it's an instantaneous moment choice. Um, <clears throat> 564 I love this this whole section here 564 he's about to say goodbye to Beatrice let's see did I um, yeah did, did I read that passage where he drank from the water no. yeah you I did it earlier yeah um, on 564, his sight has, he, he sees this dazzling point at the center of the universe, and you can imagine that's God moving so fast that he's still, um, that's a dazzling experience, and then he looks back to Beatrice, little by little faded from my sight and seen it no more, my love constrained my eyes to look again at Beatrice. If all I said of her up to that time were gathered in a single poem of praise, it would be but a scanty comment now. The beauty I saw there goes far beyond all mortal reach. I think that only he who made it knows the full joy of its being. At this point I admit to my defeat, no poet, comic or tragic, ever was more outdone by his theme than I am now. Go down from the first day that I beheld her face in this full in this life, till the vision of her now, I could trust in my poems to sing her praise. All of his poems have been songs to the universe, to God's creation, and Beatrice at the center of it. It's been the nature of his poetry. But now I must stop trying to pursue her beauty in my verse, for I have done as much as any artist at his best. As such, I leave her to the heralding of greater clarion than mine, which starts to draw its arduous theme now to a close. <coughs> we have gone beyond <coughs> um, page 565. They entered the Imperium, middle of 565. The power of new sight lit up my eyes so that no light, however bright it were, would be too brilliant for my eyes to bear. This is the vision of the light. Mm -hmm. And I saw a light that was a flowing stream blazing in splendid sparks between two banks painted by spring in miracles of color. God, out of this stream the sparks of living light were shooting up and settling on the flowers 
They looked like rubies set in rings of gold. Then as if all that fragrance made them drunk, they poured back into that miraculous flood, and as one plunged, another took to flight. The deep desire burning urging you to seek the answers to what you've seen pleases me more the more I see it surge. But you must first drink of these waters here before such thirst as yours is satisfied. So did she speak the sunlight of my eyes, and then she said, the streams, the jewels you see leap in and out of it, the smiling blooms are all prefigurations. This is the one that I read earlier. He drinks of this, this is the river of light. And by the way, it has to stand next to Unoe and Lethe. Remember at the earthly paradise, he drank from Unoe, the Lethe, the river where he um, has all of his sins wiped away, and Unoe, all of his good deeds restored. Now this is a new river. It, I, I keep thinking the biblical stuff of taste and see, drink, the thirst, those who thirst for the living. Remember the woman who at the well? Um, all those images of thirsting, I, I think, are behind this, that we're really meant to take this literally like everything else, that he will drink in the light of God. It's presented as a river. Um, no sooner had the eaves of my eyes drunk within those waters than the river turned from its straight course to a circumference. It's like a great light that, um, that corresponds to the prima mobile, or at least as its source, the source of the prima mobile, and then the Imperium unfolds to him, and he sees it in all, its, all of its beauty. On page 567, <coughs> um, it's almost overwhelming to describe it because it's so vast and rich. As if the lowest tier alone can hold so great a brilliance than how vast the space of this rose to its outer petals reach, and yet by such enormous breadth and height, my eyes were not confused. They took in all, in number and in quality. He saw it all. This is infinity. He saw it all. There, this is the, one of the most, to me, it's one of the most extraordinary lines I've ever read in my life. There neither near and far nor adds nor takes away, for where God rules directly without agents, the laws of nature in no way apply. Hold on. That's an awful translation. Let me give you another that I think is better. Um, mm -hmm. <clears throat> huh. Can't, holy cow. I do it. I don't. Well, let me give it to you. The, another translation had it, it, it. There neither nearness nor distance added or took away. For where God rules directly, the laws of time and space don't apply. There neither nearness nor distance added or took away. For where God governs immediately, the laws of time and space don't apply. Is that clear? Mm -hmm. In heaven, there is no near or far. In Earth, who is it? Um, Marianne came up the hallway, and I was passing out this morning. And as we came in the kitchen, she said, "Bob, I didn't recognize it was you because it was a distance." We very often see people at a distance, and we don't recognize them. You know, we think it may be somebody. In heaven, there is no nearness or far. In the presence of God, infinity is present. What poet has ever approached that kind of symbolic imagination? 
there is no dearness. I mean, if somebody were a thousand miles away, he would be as clear to us as somebody right in front of us because we're in the presence of God. Talk about teaching us to learn to see differently. Is that clear? Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> what did I do with that? There neither nearness nor distance added or took away. Funny. Um, we're getting close to the end. Um, What's interesting, too, is um, that what we see in all of these episodes here is that Dante gives this image of, um, is that the, the, I don't know how to put this, that the whole universe, this is the universe, is like a tree whose roots are in the mind of God. Actually, it would have to be somehow like this. It's a way of saying that everything is contained in the mind of God. He sustains it all. So everything that Dante's doing at this point is radically changing our understanding of time and space. Um, page 571, Dante looks, or 570, Dante looks at the, um, at the, um, the celestial rose, um, he's overcome with um, the beauty of it. And on page 570, O triune light which sparkles in one star upon their sight, fulfiller of full joy, look down upon us in our tempest here. If the barbarians coming from such parts as every day are spanned by Hellas, traveling the sky with her beloved son, when they saw Rome, her mighty monuments, the days of the ladder, and built high, outsoared all mortal art, were so struck with amazement. Any of you seen the movie Gladiator? Mm -hmm. Remember that movie when the gladiators come to Rome and they stand? It, there's not a question. Ridley Scott, I think, is the. There's not a question in my mind. He got that from Dante. If you remember the scene, the, the gladiators there looking at the Colosseum because they're barbarian. They've never seen anything like that. They look at it in absolute awe. Dante's giving us the same thing. Looking at the beatific rose makes him feel, there's the, there's the analogical symbolic imagination at work again. It's like a barbarian looking at Rome. For him to see the celestial rose, I mean, what, what on earth would prepare any of us for that moment? What education? By now my, at the bottom of 570, by now my eyes had quickly taken in a general plan of all of paradise, but did not fix themselves on any part and with new kindled eagerness to know, I turned around to ask my lady things that to my mind were still not clear enough. What I expected was not what I saw. I thought to see Beatrice there, but saw an elder in the robes of heavenly saints. Saint Bernard has taken her place. 572, through your own power, through your own excellence, I recognize the grace and the effect of all those things I have seen with my eyes. From bondage into freedom you led me. This is his praise of Beatrice, his thanking her. He's looking at her now because she's taken her place in the celestial rose. From bondage into freedom you led me by all those paths, by using all those means which were within the limits of your power. Everything that she has done has been to serve, to bring Dante home. This is the completion of the great theme that began with Homer's Iliad and was, came into focus in the Odyssey, the homecoming, the coming home. 
Nostalgia means a longing for home. Nostos is the Greek for home. She's the one who brought him from bondage into freedom to return him to his home, to God. Middle of 72, Bernard um, tells him that he's been sent because he was the great lover of Mary, the Queen of Heaven, for whom I constantly burn with love's wife. Will grant us every grace because I am her faithful one, Bernard, as one who comes from someplace like Croatia. Here's another simile. To gaze on our Veronica so long crave for, he now cannot look long enough. And while it is displayed, he says in thought, O Jesus Christ, my Lord, the one true God, is this what your face truly looked like then? Just so did I while gazing at the living love of the one who, living in the world through contemplation, tasted of that feast. It's the veil of Veronica that had the imprint of Christ. Mm -hmm. One of the interesting things that's going on here, if you put it all together, and he looks at Mary and he describes Mary as resembling Christ. Almost every soul that he's meeting now resembles Christ. How could he not? Christ made us. The, the, remember the, this Im, the Imago Christiani, the image of Christ in every person? We will not be who we are until we are who we are in Christ's image. That everywhere Dante's looking right now, even though each person is distinct, he's getting some resemblance to Christ. Especially in Mary. Um, on faith for um, 573 there. Um, <clears throat> on, on Canto 32, Dante describes all the tears of, of um, the celestial rose on 577. Now look at that face which resembles Christ the most for only in its radiance. Will you, there's another. Is there anybody in creation who will more resemble Christ than his mother? Christ is most fully present in her. Now look at that face which resembles Christ the most, for only in its radiance will you be made ready to look at Christ. I saw such bliss rain down upon her face, bestowed on it by all those sacred minds created to fly through those holy heights, that of all things I witnessed to this point, nothing had held me more spellbound than this. And we've been hearing all along, Beatrice overwhelms him. As all along, yeah? But now... He's in the presence of Mary. And that love which had once before descended, now saying, Ave, Maria, gratia, plena, before her presence there with wings spread wide. But remember, the, the, the specks that he looked like specks of light are angels who are flying back and forth from God's light to the celestial rose. Because light is informing everything. That's, that's the mode of existence there. God gives his light, it sustains them, they reflect back that light in themselves. Um, <clears throat> 578, all loving pride and gracious joy, as much as soul or angel can possess, is all in him, and we would have it so. For he it is who bore the palm below to Mary when the Son of God had willed to bear the weight of man's flesh in himself. Gabriel is there, they describe him. Um, so he continued to describe all the souls in the celestial rose, and then in 33 we come to the end. Um, Bernard makes a prayer to Mary, 581. I pray you also, Queen, who can achieve your every wish, keep his affection sound once he has had the vision in return. 
Protect him from the stirrings of the flesh. You see with Beatrice, all the blessed hands clasped in prayer are praying for my prayer. Dante's got to go back to write this book. A major prayer right now. I mean, think about the importance of this because Dante has been celebrating the body everywhere. The one temptation he's going to have to struggle with, particularly after having seen this, is temptations of the flesh. He has the whole of the beatific rose in prayer for him, that when he returns. 582, Dante makes his last invocation. He's made several, just like all the poets have made their invocations. 582 at the bottom. O light supreme, so far beyond the reach of mortal understanding to my mind, relent now some small part of your own self to give to my tongue eloquence enough to capture just one spark of all your glory that I may leave for future generations. For by returning briefly to my mind and sounding even faintly in my verse, more of you might will be revealed to men. His whole hope is that if he can bring this back and people will see it, they will receive more hope. They made that clear in his examination of hope with um, James. And sounding even faintly in my verse, more of your might will be revealed to men. If I had turned my eyes away, I think from that sharp brilliance of the living ray which they endured, I would have lost my senses. And this, as I recall, gave me some strength. O grace abounding and allowing me to dare to fix my gaze on the eternal light, so deep my vision was consumed in it. I saw how it contains within its depths all things bound in a single book by love, of which creation is the scattered leaves. He's beginning to approach the simplicity of God to see the unity of all things, right? All the multiplicity of the world, all its great variety um, is seen in its unity. He's approaching that moment. How substance, accident, and the relation were fused in such a way that what I now saw described is but a glimmer of that light. I know I saw the universal form, the fusion of all things, for I can feel while speaking now, my heart leap up in joy. How could it not be? I mean, he's closer to God. God has got to see all things in their unity. Um, one instance brings me more forgetfulness than five and twenty centuries brought the quest that stunned Neptune when he saw Argo's keel. That's a stunning image to me. Dante's experiences plunges him into a stupor greater than uh, Neptune felt um, spanning 25 centuries when he saw the Argo's keel. I think that's the quest for the Golden Fleece. It takes place around the time of the Trojan War. Um, why would a god be so... I mean, why is the simile here that a god is stunned by human enterprise? by human technology. I mean, Dante seems to be paying a, a compliment to the extraordinary powers that humans give that a god could be in awe of what men accomplish in making a ship, this great quest that Jason and the Argonauts go on. And one is so transformed within that light that it would be impossible to think of ever turning one's eyes from it. Once he's seen it, this goes to my question, how can Dante come back? When you've seen God, I mean, you've seen all this, what do you do? Because all good, which is the goal of will, is all collected there, and outside it, all is defective that is perfect there. Now, even in the things I do recall, my words have no more strength than does a babe wetting its tongue still at its mother's breath. 
not within the living light there was more than a sole aspect of the divine which always is what it has always been yet as I learned to see more and the power of vision grew in me that single aspect as I changed seemed to me to change itself now he sees the three circles that um, interpenetrate and overlap like colors of a rainbow um, two of them um, and the third was like a flame equally breathed forth by the other two now my weak words fall short of my conception which is itself so far from what I saw that weak is much too weak a word to use O light eternal fixed in self alone know only to yourself and knowing self you love and glow knowing and being known that circling which as I conceived it shone in you as your own first reflected light when I had looked deep into it a while seemed in itself and in its own self color to be depicted with man's very image my eyes were totally absorbed in it how in the world could the three persons Father, Son, Holy Spirit infinite in nature infinite how in the world could an infinite God in any way be conformed to a finite human I mean how do the two go together <coughs> my eyes are totally absorbed in it as the geometer who tries so hard to square the circle but cannot discover <coughs> think as he may the principle involved so did I strive with this new mystery I yearn to know how could our image fit into that circle how could it conform but my own wings could not take me so high then a great flash of understanding struck my mind and suddenly its wish was granted at this point power failed high fantasy but like a wheel in perfect balance turning I felt my wheel and my desire impelled by the love that moves the Sun and the other stars it's the same image that's closed each one of the canticles right the infernal closes with that image of moving with the Sun and the stars the period does but notice the image I like a wheel in perfect balance it's as if Dante's mind and will are like a wheel in balance, you know, moving smoothly with, with, in accord with the movement of the planetary spheres, the, the moon and the stars. And notice that word, at this point, power failed, high fantasy. What Dante has been showing us was only possible because of a high imagination, a, a, a fantasy infused by supernatural graces. So um, he struggled to see it, um, but he couldn't do it on his own and then suddenly a flash is given to him and he's allowed to see it and then he returns so there we have it I, I want to take just a minute if you don't mind I think we're a little bit pretty close I, I, just a couple of minutes what does Dante do now I really would like to hear what does he do if we take this as real and everything that he I mean he compares himself to Paul who says he had that vision in the third heaven and he comes back and says I hath not seen, ear hath not heard he doesn't go into detail we just know, believe he saw it, that he was transported had this vision everything about Dante makes it credible his humility, he, he, does, he doesn't want to do it, at the very beginning when Virgil says, when he has that Aeneas did it, Paul did it and Dante is a big wimp doesn't want to have anything he doesn't you know then Virgil scolds him and he gets on and then he, we learn that he gets this commission from uh, Beatrice 
she says, to write about it, and Cacciaguida confirms it, says you write. All along, we get these figures who are saying, you've got to go back and do this. And he even says at the end, you know, well, I have the words to do it. And um, so what does he do? <laughs> I'm asking this really seriously. I sat down with Suzanne at dinner last night and go, yeah. Okay, a priest once said to me, um, don't sweat the small stuff and it's all small stuff. So he goes back and doesn't sweat, doesn't sweat the small stuff. <laughs> I find it hard. Yeah, I find it hard to get my head around how he wrote this without writing it as he was going, as he was experiencing it. Because, say why, Scott. Why are you saying because why? Well, well because it is so sequentially um, essential from to go from beginning to end. How, after having experienced all of it, he can keep that sequence in its in, detail. In its detail, detail it's is, just yes. phenomenal. Yeah, it is. It's just extraordinary. It really is. It really is. Answer my question. How does he go back? What does he do? How does he live? Alan Tate says it's tragic. He goes back and it's... Well, he can't live what he has just experienced. I think that's the tragedy. So you agree that it's a tragedy? Do you? Yeah. Do you? Yeah. yeah. Because he's been transformed, but he can't go back, I guess, and live a transformational life. You don't think he's going to... You don't think he's going to... Right. How could he not? Because, wait, he's back. The writing is the proof of what he did when he came back. So we know he sat down and wrote. Mm -hmm. So it's not like he lost it. He couldn't have done this book. So part of him is living it. So it's not unless he's living Dr. Jekyll, and I don't believe he is. So my assumption is he, he's changed. He's writing this book. There's nothing that he does in this world that, that doesn't express carryover. But how does he do it? I mean, how does he look? Most people want things. They possess things. They want, you know, they get greedy, lust, greed, pride. I mean, all that we've seen, the graces of purgatory, the struggles. He's seen this all. Now what does he do? But the thing is that he knows what's waiting for him. And so by knowing what's waiting for him, and we know what's waiting for him, um, those things would not, they would not have the enticement yeah. that, that they would have had prior to that. So he sees I, I, I think that he would just completely, you know, you still have to eat, but eating is just to keep the body going. It's not for pleasure. Pleasure, exactly. Yeah. Um, and and so you would go through life. I think you would go through life doing those things that just keep body together, um, but knowing what's what's coming next. Those other things would be small stuff, and you just. Well, see, I, I mean, that, that, I, that bothers me a little bit. What, I mean, think, just think about this. He's not passing anything. This is not small stuff. I'm going to say, this is not small stuff. When he's writing, he's, he's depicting people in hell. So it's hard for me to see Dante not going through the world, seeing people who are doing things who are clearly going to put them in hell. He's, he's going to see people who are, however they live, who are undergoing a purgatory. That they're doing just what we see him doing. We, he's showing the souls doing in purgatory, and the blessed. So what I see is is a doc, I, sorry. Go ahead. It's a much bigger picture. Much from bigger and Dante, deeper, huh? From Dante's viewpoint, 
I think he has to take a look and go through what he just went through and now translate that to the people on the outside and say, hey, listen, you're on the wrong path, just like the prophets did. Yeah. And I think that's his overall goal is to get what he just went through into the people's mind so that they have a path. He's going to do that in his writing. I mean, that's what he does. But I, when I'm trying to picture Dante in ordinary life moving around, here's what I'm going to... I'm going to Suzanne's comment last night was that he will bring back more gratitude and love. That'll be more part of his life. I wanted to add to that, and, and much greater sorrow. That, that there's, he's going to see with eyes of love, so he's going to see a goodness most other people I don't think. But it means he's, the denunciations, he's going to be far more critical because he's going to see the horrors of things far more deeply. Two of the pictures that I've got, Christ, Christ, I think Christ wept on John's breast in scripture, and he wept on, at that moment when he was on the hill looking down at Jerusalem. He cried that I can't believe Dante's gonna feel a much greater joy than most of us feel because he knows and he sees grace working. He's also gonna feel a much graver sorrow at what he sees human beings doing. And we'll see that depicted in the Inferno, the Purgatorio, the, you know, because that whole vision is going to inform what he sees. When he sees people in, in, in Florence indulging themselves with food and drink and lust and the pride and arrogance, the envy, when he, there's, whatever he sees is going to be deepened. So his joy, I think, his joy will be far, far greater and his sorrow far, far deeper. I, I think he'll be closer to Christ. That, that, that he will be moving through the world much, much more like the way Christ did when Christ was here. How many years did he live after he wrote this? How, how many years? How many years after? Uh, when he finished this? Yeah, he I'm still not, have several more years left? I'm not sure. I have to look that up. I'm not even sure that we know. Um, I have to look that up. Dante died in Ravenna. In 1321. 21. But I don't know when he completed the, the work. I don't know. He's, no, no, I, I, he's I, writing it. He died shortly after completing it. That he didn't live very long. Well, after he, he, he didn't have to. No, wait, wait, hold on. He didn't have to because he, he had to. He, he, I don't I mean, we don't. It, it's a complicated question. He's writing. He, he, he's writing the event as if it takes place around 1300, because he's going to be exiled 13:2, and it's looking ahead. But he's writing this later, so it's already happened. But it doesn't matter. The the point here is he's however long it took him to write. He's here on Earth. He's living. He's in. He's he's exiled 13:2. So he's in exile for what is that? 19. 19 years, 18, 19, he's in exile for, so he's living in exile for 19 years, but under the influence of this vision, whether it's one year, or two, or five, to me is, the question is, anyway, let me leave it there. I just think it's an important I thing. Think that, you know, when I was 20, I had certain beliefs and acted according to those beliefs, and as I grow and mature, you know, my beliefs evolve, change, transform, and you live according to what you, believe at this particular time. So I think, you know, he would live according to what he uh, saw in the divine comedy, the bad and the good.
he would uh, live according to that. He would you know, be critical of people that were, you know, on their way to <laughs> hell, so to speak. And you know, he would be more loving, I think, after seeing paradise. Uh, so I think he would try to live out the a life according to. For sure, for sure. The, the the question is that most of us, it it seems to. Be, it's easy for most of us to say, particularly in a world that's oriented by psychology, and our world is, wasn't for Dante's time. And it's not because he didn't have a psychological grasp of things, because he did, but Dante had a much deeper. We confine ourselves with a psychological view. We, don't, we lack a metaphysical, spiritual. People of faith don't, but the question is, I mean, one of the questions raised in this, this group is, how much is our faith informed by what we learn? And, you know, we've just taken this on. It's easy to say all of us change and, and our views change as we grow older. That's true. I mean, that's, a, that's a commonplace. But that's not the quite, quite the same thing as saying, um, what does he do? Or what, what, I mean, the question that I put to you all, what do we do? Because how many people read the Divine Comedy? How many, how many actually go through an experience like that? I'm assuming that very few people in the world undergo an experience like Dante's. If we take him at his word, something happened to him like Paul. He, had a, he, was, he was gifted with a vision. You can call it the vision of a mystic, that a mystic, but it's a poet who had to enter in and do it in a way different from mystics because mystics generally don't come back and talk about it or describe it in detail. Dante does. If in fact he had this vision, then we're talking about a person who who had an experience, most of us don't. If most of us have our lives confined to psychology, as we get older, we change, our views change, we, you know. My experience of pe people generally is lots of people don't change as they get older. Lots of people stay the same. They, they, they keep the same habits, they don't change. Some people do, some people don't. I've seen lots of people get old and go to their death sadly unchanged. With Dante, we're talking about something different. If he had this vision, he's, he's bringing to his old age something the greater majority of us don't. And so my question was, because of the nature of what we've been reading, what does he do? Let me just leave it to contemplate, unless anybody's got any last words. The more important question for me that I want to leave you with is, what does Dante do if we take that seriously? I see him living more like Christ. That he, and he's got the support of a vision now that he didn't have before. So he's not going to do the things that he would have done when he was earlier, or even as a young or an older man. Because lots of men grow older and don't get close to Christ. Christ himself says lots of people are going to say Christ, 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 and they're gone. So the question I want to leave you with: Did you have one? Yeah, I was. I was going to follow on your concept about uh, the depth of his sorrow. Uh, and I, I think you're right. He, he in his vision, I, I believe that when he came back, he did try to live his life more like Christ. But he also was very aware that unlike Christ, he was not going to bear the sins of all. He was only going to have to bear his own. And that was the depth of his sorrow. Because he knew what it should be, what it could be, but he also knew he was a broken, subject to you know, concupiscence and knew that he couldn't live it the way he had seen it lived. Hmm. Yeah, part of me believes that 
particularly given the principles at work here. I, I, I agree with that, Scott. Part of me, I'd want, to, I'd want to qualify it, that because he's seen the glory in its fullness, you know, all that we've just been reading, the lights, the splendor, the beauty, the depth of it, that's in him. So he has a strength to do some things that he, with the help of Christ, he's not God. Christ was. I mean, that's the fundamental difference. That's why, that's why we need him, why we can't do this ourselves. But he also has a help um, that lots of people don't. He's seen it. He, he's known the joy of it. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's got the support of a joy that most of us, I, I think, don't have. And, and unless we read something like this and take it seriously. And if we do, it goes to my second question. What, what do we do? You know, I'm, I'm sort of amazed. And one of, the, one of the things that I want to say here, catechetically, because this is, I went into this so differently from the way I approach this when I'm teaching it at UD, there's a, this catechetical aspect. We have the help of the church here. You know, I said that earlier, that, um, that, that these graces, the sacraments, there's this rich tradition, the mystical tradition, the philosophic tradition. Remember I made the point that that the medieval Catholic was non-reflective, just lived a blind faith, and I also claimed that the modern Catholic in some ways is, is equally non-reflective. We do not know our traditions. We do not know our the heritage, the richness of it. So um, when Dante goes back, he carries so much more with him. He has the support of all these joys, which for me means his joys will be greater and his sorrows will be much, much. I can see him like Christ weeping at Jerusalem, weeping at um, at, um, at Florence. Um, the question that I want to leave, and I want to leave it here if nobody, if nobody else has any comments. How do we go back? What do we do? You know, for, particularly for those of you who've been here with Bev. Um, <laughs> huh? Lynn, yeah. What do we, you know, our church has got this wonderful rich tradition and so often we don't know it. It's, it's a part of our faith um, and, and you guys are carrying more of that, the tradition that makes up that faith now with you, which I, I cannot tell you the joy. I mean, I feel that to know that you're doing it, that it's with you, it's inside of you now. Anyway, just a big question to leave you with. Can I have a copy of that? Of which did you take? Thank you. Okay. Um, each individual's response because hmm? I, I know people that are in their fifties. They're Catholic. They don't want to go deeper. They don't have a spiritual life. And I know people that are in their thirties and forties that are deep into spiritual reading and spiritual life. It's up to an individual. I mean, the church can, <laughs> you know, talk about certain things, but the individual has to respond. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, you know, the big thing. I think a lot of us are here because we're responding to this. We're involved in <clears throat> other organizations, other groups that are into spiritual matters, into living a life like that. Whereas a lot of people are content just to live the normal American life of uh, superficial, superficiality. I mean, you just look at our politicians. Uh, I mean. <laughs> It just boggles my mind that, uh, you know, the vast majority of people don't even think, don't mm-hmm. even have a concept of, mm-hmm. of uh, 
economics. Our politicians talk about economics and they don't know what they're yeah. talking about. Yeah. Yes. Yes, I agree. Well, I, I, I hope I, the emphasis, I mean, the emphasis that I'm trying to place is that there is this extraordinarily rich tradition in our faith. It's what the church, it's there. Not everybody enters it or takes advantage of it, but it is there. And if you look at it, it's sort of extraordinary what we have that the, um, I agree. the rest of the world doesn't. So. You know, I think when, when, uh, when we went to Rome, you know, we've never been to Rome. You go to those churches, you don't really understand. Until you go to those churches, you see the artwork and the Thank you. And then you see, you have a whole different sense of what Catholicism is about. But you have to it's walk to sure. those churches. It's really you true. You have to see it on the wall. Yeah. It, it's stunning. Yes, it is. And then you go, wow. If you can't, if you don't go there, you, you don't know that. It doesn't grab you. You don't even know it exists. I couldn't agree more. To, I, I, don't, I, I can't believe I didn't say this to you guys before. Maybe I didn't, I don't know. But I had a chance to teach in Rome years ago. John Cabot University is not far from St. Peter. And when I was younger, I think before my conversion, I always wanted to go to England because of the great poets, Shakespeare. And after the conversion, I had no interest in going to England anymore. I wanted to go to Rome. So I used this opportunity to go, I mean, to teach as a way of getting there to go to Rome, and I went. <laughs> it was a selfish motive. Um, I went, and, I, and um, the night I got there, I wanted to go to St. Peter's, but I was a little bit lost. I had to settle, and the next day, the first thing I did was go to St. Peter's. I walked out in the plaza. I wept, cried. I, I mean, all that I understood about the differences between the Protestants, you know, in my mind, all that I understood, I grew up Greek Orthodox and left the church. Um, and then when I came back, I came back into Catholicism. But I was aware of America as a Protestant country, and you know. And but I stepped out, and and, and I think I taught. I think I taught Dante by then, and I'd already had the experience that, and realized that no poet had done what Dante had done. That this sense of spaciousness that I associate with the Catholic mind. I wa I, I've never. I've been in churches all my life. I walk down in St. Peter's, and if any of you have been there, you just get this sense of wow. space, wow. and 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 the saints, you know, that they were there, you know, and and I and I I just it was like a moment of freedom, like like bindings had been to stand in that presence was close to what Dante was ex describing in the Paradiso. This set neither nearness nor distance added or took away. I sat there, tears were coming out of my eyes. I thought. This is one of the fullest expressions of the Catholic faith that I, and I, I was a recent convert then. I mean, I hadn't been in the church long, but I couldn't agree more. If, if you've not gone to Europe and you, you don't have a, you don't actually experience as real, because it's more, Europe was Catholic largely, then it's in your head. It's an idea. Go there and it's an idea anymore. It's, it's an experience. It is. It's an actual living experience. It, it was stunning. Truly stunning, yeah. Okay, you guys have a good summer, all of you, all of you. Thank you. I hope, I hope we all gather again in the fall. Classical tradition. Thanks. Thanks. Smart ass. I hope I've got to give this to Dan now so he can edit this. <laughs> <laughs>